At Menominee, where I come from, we have a tradition of standing when we read God's Word in the morning, so uh, just to honor God's Word. And if you're able, would you do that this morning as I read from John chapter 4? I'll be starting in verse 1. In case you're unfamiliar with Scripture, uh, John is in the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel, so he's going to be about uh, three-quarters of the way through the Bible. There's no shame in looking in the index if you need to look in that to figure out where he is, okay? The chapters are the big numbers. The verses are the little numbers in superscript throughout the text. So we're in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And this is where the apostle John writes this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit And in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. In your goodness and your faithfulness, you have revealed who you are to us. We know that your word is living and active and that it pierces to our hearts and our motivations. And we ask, God, that we would be now pierced this morning. We know, God, that our hearts are open to you, and we pray that you would challenge us and comfort us and change us as we have need of this morning. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. At the Q&A, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the questions that I get is, what are some of the books that you're reading right now? I'll go ahead and preempt that. One of the things that I'm reading right now is the book Moby Dick. I picked up Moby Dick like 15 years ago or longer off of a clearance shelf. I'm a sucker for books. I'm a sucker for yellow clearance tags. I saw Moby Dick and I just grabbed it. I've traded my hardback copy that you can use as a doorstop for the Kindle version. Uh, But I've since picked Moby Dick back up and I've decided that I'm going to try to read the whole thing I started it a while back and uh, restarting it. We're going to finish it this time. Quick question, just curious. Who's out there has read Moby Dick? Not the abridged version, not watched the movie, the full door-stopping tome that Melville wrote. Okay, we've got a couple. Good, good. I'm guessing even if you haven't read it, you know the basics of the plot. You've got a crazy Captain Ahab, right? And he is going all around the world like a maniac hunting this whale that cost him a leg. And he will stop at nothing to get his vengeance on the white whale, Moby Dick. I'm guessing you also know that the book ends not with Ahab victorious, but rather with this crazed whaling ship captain strapped to the whale in the ropes and the harpoons that are stuck in its side as Moby Dick takes Ahab to his destruction. Here's the thing with Moby Dick, just like with all art. It's not really about a whale and a captain, right? It's about something much deeper than that. If Moby Dick was just about a whale and a crazy captain trying to chase after him, we wouldn't still be reading it 150 years after Melville wrote. It's about something deeper than that. It's about us. And we can see in Moby Dick a reflection of parts of ourselves. I would dare say that Moby Dick is in fact a book about worship. Now it's worship gone tragically wrong, but it's worship nonetheless. Captain Ahab wasn't worshiping that whale, but he was worshiping the idea of getting his revenge 
on the white whale Moby Dick. Matt Chandler in his book, The Explicit Gospel, puts it this way when he describes worship. Chandler writes, we are never not worshiping. It is easy to see that you and I have been created to worship. We're flat out desperate for it. From sports fanaticism to celebrity tabloids to all the other strange sorts of voyeurisms now normative in our culture, we evidence that we were created to look at something beyond ourselves and marvel at it, desire it, like it with zeal, and love it with affection. Our thoughts, our desires, and our behaviors are always oriented around something, which means we are always worshiping, ascribing worth to something. C.S. Lewis, being more succinct, says this, men praise whatever they value. Men praise whatever they value. Now the point from both Lewis and Chandler, who both take their points from the whole of Scripture, is simply this, that we were made to worship. We are a people who worship. The problem with humanity, though, is this, is that left to our own devices, we will always, 100% of the time, ascribe value to the wrong things. And the problem with ascribing value to the wrong things is that when we do that, instead of our worship giving us life and fulfilling us and allowing us to flourish as we were created to, it brings us death and destruction. So we are, in fact, like Captain Ahab, ascribing value to something and ultimately being destroyed by it if we're left to our own devices in worship. I wonder what some of the things are that captivate your thoughts. I wonder what some of the false things are that you are tempted to worship. Maybe you're in Christ and through the Spirit you have a measure of victory over those things. Maybe you've learned just self-control And you can keep them at bay to some extent, but I think for each of us, when we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that there are things in us that we are tempted to worship that will ultimately destroy us. Put together a quick top ten list of things we like to worship. First, comfort. Keep me from pain. Power. Do what I want. Distraction, entertain me, divert me, hold my attention. Prestige, think well of me. Health or my body, be attracted to me. Pleasure, thrill me. Security, insulate me from loss. Longevity, keep me alive at all costs. Success, I win. Or maybe popularity, love me. These are all things that can play out in our lives in a million different ways. They're all things that we can value. They're all things that can consume us and destroy us. Just stop for a minute. What are those things in your life? Which one of those traps are you most prone to fall into? What false worship are you most tempted to give? What might most easily destroy it without the power of the Spirit in your life? I'm sorry, what might most easily destroy you without the power of the Spirit in your life? We are a people who worship. The object of our worship determines if our worship will lead us to life and health and wholeness 
Or if, like the dreaded whale Moby Dick, it will literally be the death of us. John 4 teaches us about worshiping rightly. If we're made to worship, and if left to our own devices, our worship will always go awry and destroy us. The question of how do we worship rightly becomes one of critical importance. And John 4 addresses that very question. How do we worship rightly? And the truth that it teaches us is that belief in Christ allows life-giving worship that's for everyone. Belief in Christ allows life-giving worship that's for everyone. This is a large chunk of text. I would love to walk through it verse by verse, but Brian didn't actually give me an hour and a half, so we don't have the time for that. So instead of looking at this verse, verse, this chunk verse by verse, or even paragraph by paragraph, we're going to use this statement as an outline for our time this morning. Belief in Christ allows life-giving worship, and it's for everyone. So let's start with belief. This idea of belief is a critical concept for John. As he writes in his gospel, he has a clear purpose in mind for all of his writing. In chapter 20, he tells us that he wrote his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's perhaps the most popular uh, verse from the book of John or from all of scripture, right? John 3.16. And it says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This idea of belief is critical, is central to everything that John writes, so much so that he says, look, this is why I wrote the book, so that you would believe, because it's in believing that you have life. This word belief, John actually uses it in his gospel, about 40% about 40 of all the usages in the New Testament are from John's pen as he writes the gospel. So you can see how critical it is to him. It's belief in Christ. That gives life. And there are two things that we have to know about this belief in Christ. First, there's no area off limits for belief in Christ. There's no corner of our hearts. There's no nook or cranny of our lives that we can exclude from believing in Christ. We see that here in John chapter 4. After a brief chat about water, uh, Jesus goes to the most sensitive, the most painful aspect of this Samaritan's life. He's not talking to her for more than 60 seconds. And he says, hey, why why don't you go call your husband? And he knows, and she knows, that she can't. She can't because she's living under the protection of a man who is not her husband. And the fact that she isn't married to him comes at least in part from the fact that if she were to marry him, he would be husband number six for her. Now this is an instance where I think we need to be careful to not say more than the text of Scripture says. We dare not say less than it says, but we also dare not add to it. The text doesn't say that she has been divorced five times. It doesn't say that she is a prostitute or a loose woman. Uh, There are many situations that could have resulted in this woman being in the situation that she's in. We don't know exactly what has happened to her or what applies to her. But we do know this. We know that this woman lived in a time when she would have had little or no rights as an individual. We know that this woman lived in a time when to be under the protection of a man would have been of utmost importance for her. We know that she could have been forced into marriages for any wide variety of reasons. We also know that because all of us have sinned, 
and also because we have uh, suffered the consequences of the sins of others and those around us. We know that this woman's situation was not all her fault. And we know that she was not innocent. She was a victim in some ways, I'm sure. And she contributed to it in some ways, I'm sure. So here she is, less than a minute into a conversation with a complete stranger. And some of those most painful parts of her life have been opened up, have been laid bare by this Jewish man who offers her the promise of living water. Stop for a minute. Put yourself in her shoes. What's going on in your head? Right? You're walking to the well, something you've done hundreds, thousands of times. It should be anything but eventful, anything but memorable. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in a conversation that shouldn't be happening with a man that shouldn't even be there and shouldn't be talking to you. And not only that, but he doesn't just want to talk about the weather. He wants to talk about your life. And he knows things that he shouldn't know. What does that feel like? What does that make you think about? And he gives this invitation. He gives this invitation to believe. It's the same invitation that comes to each one of us today. It's an invitation that involves everything and excludes nothing. Jesus invites this woman to believe, but he will not do so in a way that leaves any aspect of her life excluded from it. The message of this story, the message of John, is that uh, belief in Jesus allows life-giving worship, and it's for everyone. There's no area of our life that is off-limits to this belief. That's the first thing. No area of life is off-limits to belief. The second thing is this. Belief must be acted out. A couple weeks ago, Brian gave a sermon titled, we, uh, What We Believe We Do. And the connection between belief and action in Scripture cannot be overstated. There is no category in the Bible for somebody who believes in something simply as mental agreement. There's no category in Scripture for belief being just about what we think or what we have knowledge of. Belief in Scripture is always acted out. And we know this to be true in our own lives, right? We know that there are all sorts of things that we have knowledge of that we don't really believe. You know, like ice cream. I know that ice cream is at the top of the food pyramid. And they're not even using a food pyramid anymore, are they? they got like a plate and a cup or something like that. I don't, I don't know, like my place setting. I, And there's not, I don't know why, but there's not on the my place setting a bowl of ice cream next to it. I know that ice cream is full of fat and sugar and you're not supposed to eat it that often. I know that. But let me tell you what I believe about ice cream. I believe that ice cream is delicious. I believe that it fills in the cracks. So no matter how much you've had, there's always room for some ice cream. I believe that at my house we have a rule. When we empty one carton of ice cream, we go to the store and get two more, just to make sure that we never run out, right? I believe that about ice cream. You know that's what I believe about ice cream, because you look at my life and that's what I do. What we believe, we do. 
The belief that we are invited to, the belief that allows life-giving worship isn't just a matter of opinion. It's not just a matter of facts or mental agreement. It's a matter of life and habits. It's a matter of actions and behaviors. It's belief in Jesus that allows life-giving worship. So belief in Jesus, let's shift over to worship. Belief opens the door for us to worship. Let's talk about that for a second. There's a deep connection between believing in Christ and worshiping God because we cannot worship God rightly until we believe Jesus truly. We cannot worship God rightly until we believe Jesus truly. The fact is this, let's, if we come back to our definitions of worship, the idea that we worship what we desire, we won't on our own because of the sin in our lives ever desire God. We won't. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture tells us that there is no one righteous, no, not one, that we all go our own way. All of us, apart from Christ, will turn our backs on God and desire other things. We cannot worship Him because apart from Christ, we don't see God as good. We don't see God as desirable. We don't see God as loving. It's when we believe in Christ, when we trust that what he has said about himself is true, that we can see God is good and that we can worship him. Because when we look at Christ and when we believe what he says, when we believe what he tells the woman here in this passage, that he is the one that we've been waiting for, that he is sent to bring salvation to the world. When we believe that Jesus is on a mission from God, then all of a sudden, God goes from somebody who is out to rightly punish us because of our sin to somebody who has acted on our behalf by sending his very son for our salvation and for our restoration. When we trust this about Christ, when we trust that he is God sent to save us, then all of a sudden, the door to worshiping God is opened. All of a sudden, our view of who God is and how we relate to him shifts and changes. It's belief in Jesus that allows life-giving worship. Let's look here for a moment at verse 19 of uh, our passage this morning. In verse 19, the woman replies to Jesus' revelation about her husband's and her marital status by asking a question. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Now, some people say here that the woman is being evasive. She's trying to change this subject. But I think there's something deeper going on in the text. She identifies Jesus as a prophet, and she asks how to worship rightly. And these aren't just smoke screens. And Jesus' reply shows us that he took her questions seriously. Jesus doesn't have patience for people who are being evasive. Jesus doesn't continue a conversation with somebody who's trying to change the subject. But here he answers her questions as legitimate questions that she's asking. She starts out by identifying him as a prophet. Just a quick word about that. That's more than a respectful title, right? A prophet is somebody who speaks for God. 
So in identifying Jesus as the prophet, she's saying, you know what, I know you are somebody who speaks for God. I know that you can tell us about God, things that we need to know. And then she asks this question about temples. It's more than just a question about buildings or geography, because we, do, we can't think of a temple like we think of a church today, right? You can meet God in any church that is preaching his word rightly, because God is spirit. And after, uh, after the Holy Spirit came, the worship of God was decentralized, so that location no longer mattered. But this is before Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit has come. So location is still very important. And the temple was a place where God dwelt in a way that he did not dwell in other places. So her question about temples is a question, in fact, of saying, how do I worship God rightly? She's saying, look, I know you're somebody who speaks for God. You wouldn't have known that about me if you didn't. So you must have some information about this. And I know that the way I've been living my life isn't working. I need to worship rightly. How do I worship rightly? Jesus answers with his most complete statement on worship recorded for us anywhere in the Gospels. He says three things. He says, first, he says, a time is coming. A time is coming. Let's not jump over this as just flowerly language, as as just some kind of rhetorical flourish that Jesus is throwing in there to sound, you know, Jesus-ish. Jesus is making a promise that, hey, look, right now, worship isn't as it should be. Right now, life isn't as it should be, but it won't stay that way forever. In verse 23, he adds, the time is coming and is now here. It's here in Christ. But I would add to that that though it was there when Christ came, it was not yet complete. And it is still not yet complete. So the promise that Jesus made to this woman 2,000 years ago by a dusty well in Samaria holds true for us today. There is a time coming. We try to worship rightly, but we don't always get it right, do we? My mind wanders. My heart wanders when we're singing when I should be worshiping. We don't always get it right. We want that, but we don't get there. Jesus steps into that and he says, a time is coming. A time is coming when you will get it right. It's a great comfort to us. Second, Jesus makes it clear that worship is worship in spirit. Worship doesn't just happen when you stand up. It doesn't happen when you raise your hands or if a tear rolls down your cheek. Worship isn't just about Ted and the team making that key change that you love so much in the middle of days of Elijah. Worship isn't about externals. Worship is a matter of the heart. Worship is a matter of the deepest parts of us. It's a matter of spirit and soul, not just external countenance. John Piper says this he's in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, this is the essence of worship, to act in a way that reflects the heart's valuing of the glory of God. Worship, true worship, is an intense and passionate value of God in his glory. It's erupting from the deepest part of who we are. Those who would engage in the life-giving worship of God must do so in spirit. And lastly, they must do so in truth. It means truth about us. It means truth about who we are. It means bringing all of us into worship. We've already seen that for this woman to believe it required all of her. It required acknowledgement of the most painful, chaotic, 
difficult parts of her life. And as a part of the process of candidating, Allison and I are getting our house on the market. And you want it to look good when you're getting your house on the market, right? So there might be some things under the bed right now in my house that aren't normally under the bed. You know what I'm saying? There are some things that are hidden because I want it to look good. How tempting can it be for us to hide things in our life so that we can come to worship and look good? That's not the way it works. We need to worship in truth, bringing all that we are. Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago in his message. We don't need to come to Lakewood and plaster smiles on our faces and pretend that everything's okay. Because you know what? Everything isn't okay for the person sitting next to you either. And we don't do ourselves any favors. We don't grow in love for one another and in love for God by pretending that everything's okay in our lives and shielding off those painful places when it's just not. We worship in truth. But we uh, need not simply be truthful about ourselves. We must also worship God in the truth of who he is. It brings us back to the idea of belief. If we're going to have life-giving worship, it must entail worshiping God as he truly is, not just as we made it out to be. That's why it's so important to stay grounded to God's word, right? Because it's when we look at God's word that the erroneous notions that we have of who God is, that the ways that we try to make God in our image get dispelled and lies get replaced with truth. It's belief in Christ that makes this life-giving worship possible. There's another aspect of the story that we haven't touched on that's critical to understand what John is teaching us. It's critical to understand for worship, and it's the idea that belief in Christ that allows life-giving worship is for everyone. We see this throughout the passage. We see it in the simple fact that this is a Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to. John makes it clear. You don't have to know any ancient history to know that Jesus and this woman shouldn't be talking to each other. John tells us, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He tells us when his disciples get back, and they're all shocked that Jesus is talking to this woman. You know this isn't normal. This isn't the woman Jesus should have been talking to. But the belief in Christ is for everyone. Nobody's excluded. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's outside the promises of Christ. That means that you're not outside the promises of Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, no matter where you've been or the ways you've sinned, you're not outside the promises of Christ. You're not too far gone. Jesus knew everything about this woman's life before he said, Hey, could I have a drink? And it didn't stop him from relating to her and conversing with her and promising her life-giving water if she would believe. You're not excluded from the offer of life. Believe in Christ. Second, if we're not excluded, nobody else is either. That means this is for your friend, it's for your coworker, it's for your family member, it's for your classmate, it's for your neighbor. It's for the neighbor who plays his music too loudly too late or the neighbor who doesn't mow his lawn when you want him to. It's for the person who cuts you off in traffic. It's for that telemarketer who's calling and trying to scam you. We take comfort in the fact that we're not outside God's grace when we're convicted of our sin and when we're aware of our need for forgiveness and we need to then also be motivated by that fact to recognize that there is nobody outside of God's grace. 
Our worship can't end with us. It has to be lived out in the value of intentional outreach. There are people in the Baxter-Brainerd area that God is working in their lives and hearts to bring them to himself. At first glance, it would seem that this this story about food and the harvest is kind of a, kind of doesn't fit. At first glance, it seems almost like a non sequitur. But John put it in here for a reason. John put it in here to drive home the point that this belief in Christ that allows life-giving worship is for everyone. As Jesus is harvesting belief in this woman that he's talking to, he tells his disciples, lift up your eyes. The fields are ready for harvest. As Jesus harvests belief and praise in our own lives, we too must also lift up our eyes to those around us and those around the world and recognize that belief in Christ that allows life-giving worship is for them too. And we have a part to play in that. Three things that all of us can do today in response to God's word. First, we believe. A belief that brings all that we are and impacts all that we do. Second, we worship. We worship in spirit and truth. And lastly, we labor. We work in God's harvest fields knowing that He has prepared a good crop. Let me pray for us that we would be able to do those things. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that You did not leave us to wallow in the sin and destruction of our worship gone wrong, but instead you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to set an example for us and to take the punishment that we deserved that we might be set free from sin and death to worship you. Would you help us, God, to believe? Show us, Spirit, those areas of our life that are currently mired in unbelief, Would you help us, God, to worship, to worship you in spirit and in truth? And would you give us strength, God, to labor? Give us faith to see that there is a harvest ready to bring in. And give us strength and wisdom to bring it in. For your glory, for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.